Welcome to Map Your Future, a new podcast show that digs deep into the minds of successful people. They'll be sharing their journeys and giving us an insight into their daily habits and rituals, how they navigate through adversity and keep striving for greatness in sport, in business and in life. Welcome to the first episode of Map Your Future. I hope you guys enjoy listening. Today's guest is a right treat for you. He was a 2008 Beijing Olympic trialist, two times elite BMX national champion, a family man with three children and a loving wife, a man that at the age of 18, he dropped out of college and couldn't secure a job for love nor money. He's now gone on to become a director of a successful recruitment agency, uh, an all-round nice guy. Please join me in welcoming Lawrence Mapp. How's it going, Lawrence? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thank you. Yourself? All good, all good. Um, first podcast uh, guest, how are you feeling about that? Yeah, there's not much pressure, is there? <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. Um, so basically, obviously, we're, we're, you know, we've managed to put this podcast together with your help, actually. You've done quite a lot of the technical stuff behind the scenes. We've had a bit of a nightmare start this morning, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, it's been a bit crazy, but we're getting there. We're getting there, we're getting there slowly. So COVID-19, obviously, we're, we're in the kind of four or five weeks into lockdown lockdown now how how's it going from your side how, how are you coping with everything yeah i've been coping quite well to be fair i mean um majority majority of the time i've got the kids at home um as long as still a key worker so she's at work in every day she, i think she worked like seven days last week um so it's quite not quite a nice role reversal me being at home with the kids and sorting everything out it's giving me plenty of time to do bits of cooking and stuff like that Dad, daddy daycare. Yeah, daddy daycare. I'm not too sure about the school, the teaching side of things. Um, <laughs> teachers need rewards, I tell you. Um, little little rumour has it that you've been been uh, out on the road bike. Is there any chance of a return, BMX return? <laughs> yeah, I done. I rode rode 20 miles last Wednesday and then 20 miles Thursday, and then had a couple of technical problems. So I thought I'd try and fix my bike, and I broke it. So I didn't. I didn't get out on Friday. Um, hopefully going to get out today. Just ordered the new bits that I need for my bike as well. So good stuff. So, so we'll see you back on a BMX track soon, yeah? <laughs> I'm not too sure about that. <laughs> let's let's jump straight in then, Lawrence. So obviously you've you know your story is really insightful. So just want to touch base around kind of you know being born and bred in Luton. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing. What was it like kind of growing up in Luton? Yeah, I mean, growing up in Luton, I've had I've had a great childhood. I mean, like, um, I grew up in Sunderland Park for 16 years. Um, went to all the local schools there, like James Infants, Sunderland Park Juniors, um, and then went on to high school in Icknell. Um, I love Luton. Born born and bred Lutonian. Pe- people say it's a bad place, but yeah, it's like anywhere you get good people and bad people. But so you went to Icknell, um, obviously. Just for people that don't really know Luton, so Sunderland Park is one of the what we would call kind of the more privileged areas of Luton. You went to Sunderland Park and Cheney's, but then you went to a completely opposite side of Luton. So from your transition from junior and um, infants through to high school was the opposite ends of Luton. I guess you didn't really know anyone when you went to high school. Is that right? Yeah, no, I mean, so basically when I was in year six, um, mum and dad didn't really want me going to the local high school. Um, so I applied for two other schools. I applied for Cardinal Newman and for Icknield. Um, 
applied from both, got accepted into both, and then I was given the really difficult decision of which one to choose. Um, ended up choosing to go to Icknield. It was quite scary, really, because it was there was only one person, that I, one other person that I knew that was actually going to the school. Um, but it almost gave me like a clean slate. So yeah, it was it was, it was a good decision I made. Growing up, we were obviously quite lucky, like to have two two parents that were heavily involved in our sport in life. And, you know, as much as it pains me to say it, you was very talented and kind of had a natural gift when it comes to sport that you could turn your hands to anything and, and be really good at it. So BMX aside, we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later on. What other sports did you play when you were younger? Um, so I played football from a really young age. Um, I played for the local team, Thunder Park Rangers, um, which was kept me really busy. Um, when I joined high school, I actually got involved with rugby and athletics and cross country. Re- really, it was just any sport that could get me out of a little bit of school time. I was more more than keen for. <laughs> so to keep you out of the classroom, you tried to play as much sport as possible. Then. Yeah, definitely. I, I was doing anything and everything. So talking a little bit more about that, obviously, probably a lot of people don't know that um, rugby, you was... It, you know, in particular, I would say, was probably one of your other standout sports. And you started playing at Luton Rugby Club at the age of 12, and then you progressed quite quickly with rugby, didn't you? What position did you play? And, and tell us a little bit about um, kind of where your rugby took you over kind of your high school years. Yeah, I mean, like, I fell in love with rugby in my first year of high school. Um, ended up joining Luton Rugby Club, um, playing the weekends. Uh, ended up going on, up on to represent the county. Um, where I had a couple of clubs looking at me. Um, once I left school, though, I just decided I didn't want to play it anymore. It was when I felt, when I was in year seven, I was always a lot taller than bigger than everyone else, and it was like it, it, I didn't need an excuse to hit anybody. So I just took my frustrations out on life in rugby. Um, played number eight, which is at the back of the scrum. Um, yeah, it's just a really good sport. It was. I do remember you was you was like a man mountain, and we'd come and watch you at Luton, and you'd have kind of two or three kids just like hanging off the back of you, trying to take you down, and you're just like running with them on your back. Yeah, I remember them days, <laughs> the good old days. And I think you had a couple of clubs like Saracens was looking at you. Um, also, when you played county level, and I remember people having chats with mum and dad about kind of representing the east of England. So. You know, you'd have some real raw talent there. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, like, uh, I don't know. I just wasn't scared to tackle. I mean, that's obviously a massive part within rugby. Um, like, when we were playing for Luton Rugby Club, there was a couple of people that just wouldn't tackle. I suppose it's a bit like football as well. I mean, you get people that have got strong strong in their skill areas and then don't want to tackle. It's pretty similar, to be fair. So, t- touching on the football, Lawrence, we won't talk about your fir- your, well, my first ever game. Uh, but, you know, when I played against you and, and using goal and I scored because that really upset you, doesn't it? Yeah, but hold on. I did leave my football boots at school. I had to play in trainers <laughs> in the wet conditions. That's why you scored. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you played football from a young age and actually you was a really good goalkeeper. <laughs> yeah, I was a good goalkeeper. Um, started off playing from when I was seven. And once again, it was just more of a, I wasn't scared to like go into the one, one-on-one situations and stuff like that. Um so I played, actually represented the county in football as well. Um, I think I only went to one game. Um, basically, they were short on players on pitch. So they put another goalkeeper in goal and put me on pitch and um, they stuck me in defence. Yeah, and that was the last time I played for the county. <laughs> yeah, you had a good game then, yeah? Yeah, I had a, a worldie. <laughs> um, 
but kind of following in your footsteps, obviously, we'll just touch briefly on on your daughter, your, uh, your Brooke, who's now she's now plays in goal and uh, for a girls' team. She played for a boys' team since she was since she was like six. She's now twelve, yeah, eleven, yeah, and and she's she's flying, isn't she? Yeah, she's doing really well, to be fair. So, like Brooke started off playing with a boys' team, um, and the coach uh, he just had too many players, so we split and started our own team under the same club. Um, and she was my goalkeeper. I mean, it pains me to say it, but she was the goalkeeper because she was the worst player on the on the pitch. Um, <laughs> a bit like, was that a bit like you, Lawrence? Yeah, I think it might have been a bit like my journey. Brooke's just going in my footsteps now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like so she, she started off when she was seven. Um, she's now 11, representing the county um, county level. So she's, she's a really good goalkeeper. She's not scared either. She's got a few few um, coaches locally that are looking at her as well for more professional teams, isn't she? And obviously yeah. with women's football, you know, what's to say that she can't go on and make a career out of it? So watch this space with her. Talk, and also one of the things that um, we spoke about was the water skiing, because we used to water ski from a young age, didn't we? Yeah, we did. I mean, we used to go over to the ski club in um, Bountain Lodge, um, St. Neat. And we used to literally go over there. I don't, don't remember what age we started going over there from, but like we used to go over there and spend the whole of the six weeks holidays. We'd be like um, travellers. We'd just pull up in our caravans, have the lake, and Dad had the boat and everything. Um, and we used to just ski every day, no matter what. Mum used to love it when it, when it used to rain, because after the rain, it, the water was just like glass. Yeah, we've got some good memories over then. And, and you mentioned that, you know, some of the pros, like the BMX pros that we had come over. Um, when we were kids, it was like like a dream come true, wasn't it? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, like they, they at the time they were our idols in the country. And I mean, like you had the likes of like Dale Holmes, the Murray brothers, the Phillips coming over. It was, we had great times over there. Skiing. Was it? Was it? Was it Jamie? I think it, Dale come over with Jamie Staff, didn't he? And yeah. I think it was Jamie that. He couldn't put the um, belt round on the kneeboard. Like, yeah. He couldn't fit round his thighs because they were too big. Yeah, no, that's it. We, we struggled to find a wetsuit for him where, where his thighs were so big as well. So, yeah, in, in, the, in the end, we just used to take the strap off and he used to go without it. <laughs> so, obviously, really diverse sporting background. The fact that you kind of um, played all of these sports and, and participated in all these sports at such a high level shows kind of your raw talent. Do you think that, you know you could have probably gone on to achieve greater things in one certain sport if you solely focused on it. And and do you regret not focusing on one sport? Um, I think to a certain extent, yeah, looking back, um, if I'd have, I think that if I'd have concentrated on rugby alone, I'd have definitely gone further. I mean, I was always taller and bigger and than everyone that was my age. And I just wasn't scared to use that to my advantage, uh, even when I was playing up in the older age groups and stuff like that. Um, I, don't, I mean, I don't regret anything in life. I mean... We make decisions, don't we? And we just have to stick by them until we get older. Yeah. Now, I, I think, like you said, it, it, kind of having all of them different kind of tools in the box, like sports, different sports, you obviously mix with a lot of different people and it, and it kind of makes you the person that you are today. Oh, yeah, massively. So going, just going back a little bit, uh, kind of mid-teens, kind of 14, 15, 16, was a weird, weird age for us. Obviously, our mum and dad split up. Do you think that that kind of had a bit of an effect on you? Um, yeah, I think it did have a massive effect on me. I mean, I always remember like mum and dad splitting up when we were like fourteen. And I just felt like my world was over. Um, I basically I ha- hated the whole world, uh, but just wasn't very good at voicing it. Um, I went off on like my own little path where I hated school. I rebelled against the pe- against our parents, and I was just all round a horrible kid. I think to be fair. 
Um, I don't think you was that bad, Lawrence. You weren't that bad. Yeah, I, know I don't know. That's, that's I know the, what you're saying. That's the and, and, um So, school. So, I guess kind of that was a, a, a critical age for you, kind of, um, you know, your latter years in high school, and which then kind of leads on into you, your work and your career and stuff like that. So, kind of GCSE results, college, work, the real world as such. Yeah, I mean, like, especially, especially like, like the last, my last two years, so like year 10 and year 11 in high school, they were my worst. I mean, like, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I left school. Um, yeah, we had a careers officer in school, but I just remember telling them that I was either going to play rugby or ride my bike. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Ended up doing neither. <laughs> I mean, like... So do you, is, is that literally, sorry, is that literally kind of what you wanted to do? Did did you know what else you wanted to do in, in with your future or No, I mean I didn't I didn't have any clue whatsoever. I just obviously didn't know what I was going to be good at. I was definitely always going to be more of a hands-on person. I was very much out but like, I loved the outside outdoors and stuff. Um love wearing a pair of shorts and t shirt. <laughs> so I mean like that's, I what guess... you're, that's what you're known for, right? Shorts, yeah definitely yeah definitely shorts shorts, t shirt and flip flops. Um, I think it was Rich Eames when um, we posted on LinkedIn um, a photo of you joining Somnium Recruitment. He he messaged saying because it was top up, top half up, and you had kind of your your, your suit and your tie etc on. And he yeah. said, uh, "I'd put a hundred pound on that he's wearing shorts and flip flops on the bottom half." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, I know. I know. So just go back, like, leaving school. Talk us through a little bit about your career because, actually, it's a really interesting in story. When you left school, you didn't get the, the greatest exam results. No, but I mean, you didn't roll on a bricklaying course, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, needless to say, I mean, like, like I said, like, my last two years were really bad. Um, so I didn't – my exam was, weren't the greatest. I remember leave, living with mum at the time um, – I told her, I did a little story. I told her I had an RE exam the next day, but it was in the afternoon. Um, so I was laying in bed and mum come in, dragged me up by my ear roll. And I was like, what's going on? She said, you told me that exam was in the afternoon. If not, they've just rang and want to know where you are. So like, she literally dragged me out of bed, got me dressed. <laughs> uh, I got myself dressed, drove me to the school. By the time I got into like the exam hall, I sat down, wrote my name at the top of the paper and that was it. It was the end of it. Um, so yeah, I think I think I got a U for like religious education. Um, <laughs> I was gonna say, I was gonna say, I bet, I bet you didn't get a good result in that one. No, nah, definitely not. I mean, I left school with one C, four Ds, four Es, and F and a U. Um, I, I was mortified to be honest, but I didn't, I didn't even bother telling anyone what I what I'd got. You made me look good the following year, though. <laughs> yeah, that's so try, talk, so... trying to help you out when I. <laughs> so you, you enrolled on a bricklaying course. I, I mean, before we kind of look back before we'd done the podcast uh, some of the stuff you've done I've completely forgot about it's, it's really interesting so talk us talk us through kind of your your journey over the next kind of five six years yeah I mean luckily like my exam results were bad but I'd already enrolled on a bricklaying course so I knew that come September that's that's basically what I was going to be doing um yeah. had a pretty chilled summer that rolled on by and then it got to like the first day of term and I was like really really nervous and I woke up on the day that I was meant to be going to college and I, I didn't know what to wear. Like, I didn't know whether to dress smart or whether to wear scruffy clothes. And in the end, I never attended. I mean, this, this <laughs> looking back, it's like the <laughs> craziest thing ever. But I suppose like when you're like seven, 16, 17, everything's all about image. And I didn't want to turn up looking 
like an idiot. Do you know what I mean? So I just didn't bother going. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened from there? Um, so about a month rolled past, so I enrolled myself on a sports therapy course. Um, done my first year of that, completed that, and got all my assessments for like um, carrying out massages and carrying out work in the gym. And then I got into my second year, and just halfway through, I just wasn't enjoying it. Um, so I left and basically entered the big world wide of work. I think some of the, at the time, some of our friends had already w- w- you was at college, and I think I'd just started college. And kind of the group of friends that we were hanging around with, they were working and had a bit of cash, and they were kind of going out the weekends and stuff, weren't they? And me and you were kind of like, oh, there's only so many times you could kind of go to mum and dad for money to go out. Yeah, so definitely, think, definitely. Think that was an influence by you wanted to go and get a job. Yeah, I think so. I think it was more money related more than anything. Um, and you had a bit of a shock when it comes to, to, because obviously you left and you thought, oh yeah, we'll get a job. And then kind of you had a bit of an eye opener, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, you could say that. I mean, I, I obviously left thinking, yeah, I'm going to be all right. Um, so I applied for a few jobs. Uh, tried to get a job. Tried to get a job at McDonald's, and they didn't even come back to me. To be fair, and <laughs> then I tried to get a job at our local bookers. Um, got an interview. I was made up. I literally put put on a pair of trousers, shirt, Nick Dad's old um, Del Boy jet sheepskin jacket. Oh God! <laughs> literally, I was thinking I was the mutt's nuts. Turned up to the interview. Yeah, I didn't get that job either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so li- so you literally applied. Uh, numerous places, McDonald's, the local wholesalers, wholesalers, which is bookers, couldn't get a job. But then you got a job working with one of dad, one of dad's mates. Got your job at his local. Yeah, he did. Now, yeah, dad, he? dad sorted me out a job, just basically helping out and assisting with like MOTs and basic mechanics and stuff like that. Um, and I and I really enjoyed it. I mean, I was getting thirty pound a day. I thought I was living the dream. Do you know what I mean? I was literally. <laughs> I think I was getting. I was getting my money at the end of the week, and I was in the pub with all the lads and. That was what life was about. And then, and then, uh, and then, obviously, on the side of that, you was also getting your BMX winnings, and you were still racing as well. Yeah, so I was. Yeah, so you wasn't doing too. Yeah, bad. I was going, going away um, at the weekend. I mean, that 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 was probably at the time when they were doing like the no clips and stuff like that, on top of the nationals. Um, so like coming away from a weekend with possibly like seven hundred to a thousand pound, it was wicked times. <laughs> Yeah, maybe maybe for you, not, not for me. <laughs> um, then you moved on and you worked for a haulage firm, didn't you? Yeah, I worked for a company called KPG Haulage. I mean, Dad Dad sorted me this job out as well. Um, and basically, I just went in there and I was just like a skivvy boy. I was just tidying up, making sure the trucks were nice and clean. And then, like the boss, he was a bit of an alcoholic. Um, so my job used to include driving him to pubs and that during the day. Um, he was basically a, a, a driver, weren't you? He gave you his, didn't he give you his Mercedes to drive? Yeah, around? I had his Mercedes C two hundred driving him round, and then I used to drop him. <laughs> off, I used to drop him off when he was finished at the pub, and he used to say, "Take the car home, don't worry about it." Um, I remember you'd come home at the weekend, and you'd be like, "Right, boys, we're going to go for a little cruise." Yeah, 20, 21 years old, he's gone from being, you know, not attending his first day at his bricklaying course <laughs> to rolling in a in a Mercedes C two hundred. Yeah, living the dream, were not I? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, like they, they had a company um, dog as well. And I mean, like it was my job to look after the dog. So like, I was going into work on Christmas Day, feeding the dog, make sure it, make sure it was all okay. Yeah. In the in the end, I mean, the, the travellers nicked the dog. <laughs> Such a lovely dog. Big station it was as well. And I mean, I, I was earning forty pound a day there, so I'd I'd got a ten pound a day pay rise, and I was I was buzzing. And then 
at this time, I think was when obviously, like you, you mentioned earlier, we were kind of started going out and and uh, you know drinking and meeting girls like you're doing all that stuff. And um, obviously, you at the time then met your wife. Yeah. Donald. Yeah, so I met, and that was when things started to change, right? Yeah, massively. Like my whole life changed. You know what I mean? So, like we, I'd actually been on a BMX trip to Spain um, with the Spanish Federation. Invited me and Kelvin Beatty to go out because Kelvin was in elite, and I'd obviously just completed my first second year of junior, um, and I yeah. was like in the top eight in my second year. Um, so they invited me and Kelvin out to do a race over there. Um, where was that? Was that Valencia? No, I don't. I don't remember whereabouts it was. To be fair, oh, Alicante. It might have been Alicante. But we, like me and Kelvin, went over there. We had a couple of days there. We had a great crack. Great, a great race that was put on. I had an even better time on the night out. Um, but where, where did you finish? Can you remember? No, I think I crashed and broke. Oh, yeah. Do you know what? I crashed and broke my collarbone. Because I remember, like the like the other races when we was on the night out, they were like, "Oh yeah, take this, take this," and it was like a little capsule, yeah, and you just had to break the lid off of it. And it was like, I don't even know what it was, to be fair, but it was a good painkiller. <laughs> it sounds, that sounds a bit dodgy, though. Like, right? Yeah. So, so basically, um, when I come back, it was we were celebrating my 18th birthday. Um, I think you might have been out of us. I can't remember, to be fair. Um, yeah, I, I was. It was Jumping Jackson. Yeah, that's right. So we all went over to Jumping Jackson Dunstable for a night out. Um, I'd literally just turned 18. And like me and Donna went to school together. For the whole five years and didn't speak. Like she was a year older. She always thought she was better than what, what I was. So we're like, we, we, <laughs> ne- we never spoke. But um, on this night out, I was obviously had a couple too many. Uh, went up and just chatted to her and just asked her how her lad was. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, she basically bombed me off. She was like, no, nah, you're too young. You're too young. And I was like, what do you mean? I said, I'm 17. And like being drunk, I was like, oh, no, I'm not. I'm 18. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't even know you. No, I didn't even know my own age. I look like a right muppet. But um, yeah, I mean, from there, I just persistency. I think one or over, (laughs) one or over, one or over. And obviously, that leads on to kind of when you secured your job, your longest serving job at the council. You was there for was it seventeen? Yeah, I was there for seventeen years. How did that come about? Uh, I mean, one one morning, I just woke up and Donna, Donna turned around and said to me, I mean, she, she'd had her job. She was working for the county court. Um, she was like, as she was leaving, she was like, oh, you've got a job interview tomorrow. And I was like, I said, no, I haven't. I said, I haven't even applied for any jobs at the minute. And she was like, no, I've applied for this one for you. And I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, it's, it's working for the council. And I was like, all right, doing what? And she was like, oh, a street cleaner? And I was like, not a hope in hell chance am I going out cleaning streets. I was like, I've got a reputation to upkeep here, you know. <laughs> anyway, I mean, I got up, I went for my interview. Um, I always remember it was the most daunting time. I mean, off I went with my, my little um, record of achievement, my little red book. Um, so, yeah, we went to the interview and I remember going into the room and there was like three, three people in there. There was Alex Green, Mick Regan and Diane Harvey and it was like the most nerve-wracking time ever like basically told them about all the jobs I've previously done and then as I was leaving I got out of the room and I was like oh, wow that was hard work and then like the Alex Green come out and said oh he said what's that in your hand I said oh this is my record of achievement he said you didn't even show us that I said, oh, no, I didn't. Anyway, I ended up going back in there, showing them my record of achievement. I was thinking, oh, my goodness, they're going to see my grades. I am definitely, definitely not getting this job. 
And then you ended up. Yeah, you I ended did. Up like two weeks later, I heard back from them, and they said that I'd got got this, got a start. So I couldn't believe it. I've made up. And you you started there, and then obviously, do you want to tell us a little bit about your progression? Because obviously, you progressed quite quickly there, and you you know you you had a long time. Yeah, there no, I did. I mean, I started there when I was eighteen. Um, I basically I'd gone there, but I'd already had my driver's license, so it was already a good little um, niche thing to have, um, as they weren't didn't really have a lot of drivers. But I remember I remember starting and getting this green uniform, and I was like, Jesus Christ. And I remember, like, you and all my mates, like, they were taking the piss, calling me um, Kermit the Frog and just giving me a real hard time about it. <laughs> I, I never could you that. definitely did. Um, oh, I do remember, though, I, I look back at it now and I think, fair play to you, you know, you know, you used to get up for work every single day and you loved that job and you done so, and the career you carved out from it, because... You went on to be promoted from like a street picker to like in charge of a gang within what? Yeah, I mean, like, I was a, basically I was on the tools on the on the shop floor um, for three years, and then I was given the opportunity to basically like run my like. Then I was given an opportunity to be actually be a sweeper driver first. Um, so I used to drive the little pavement sweepers, um, and yeah. so I've done that for a couple of years. And then I was given the opportunity to really run my own gang with my own area. So like, I, I used to run like the east yeah. then the east side of Luton. And like that's where I really learned to like take a lot of pride in like my work and what I did. Um like, I never used to like people used to say, Oh, it's only the council, you're gonna get paid no matter what. And I used to be like, Yeah, but this is my area, do you know what I mean? So like I I done that for probably four or five years. And then before I progressed into the office, I mean like I was I was really, really fortunate that my work went before me. So I'd get up, I'd be on time every day. I was starting at six in the morning and, and the work hours were really good as well. And they suited me. So I was starting work at six um, and finishing at half two. And then like Friday, I'd start work at six and finish at 11. So it was almost like having a three day weekend every weekend. Like, And it, and it suited my lifestyle yeah. when it comes to like BMX and things like that. Um, so I mean, yeah. yeah, and then when I was in the office, I was in the office for nine, nearly ten years. Um, had some really good role models like within the council. I mean, like, so when I start first started there, there was a guy that was a charger, and and he really gave me a lot of guidance and advice along the way. Um, Duncan, Duncan Sterling, his name was. I mean, he was he really was a good guy and um, took care of me like realistically like my whole throughout my whole career there, um, and obviously. As I've become a charge and um, which was what Duncan was doing. So I, we we was running, he was running one area and I was running another area, and I was given the opportunity to work in the office um, under Alex Green and William Green. And basically they were just really good mentors and good, good all-round people. And it really mm. I think that really shaped me as for like who I am today. So after being at the council for around 10 years in the office um more recently things have, have changed changed again for you Lawrence yeah I mean I was I was offered the opportunity to come work with alongside you um I know you've been in your journey for just over a year um so yeah I mean you approached me spoke to me about it told me about your vision and where you want the company to go um, and what direction you wanted and what you wanted from me um I just felt like it was an opportunity that I just couldn't turn down um, I mean, it was it was a really really hard decision for me because 
obviously the only thing I'd known since I was 18 was working for the council. Um, but I felt like I was really excited for the opportunity. Um, I like the vision and I like, like what you want to be doing. And and like you said, obviously, after being in kind of local government and the council for kind of 16, 17 years altogether, to change from that kind of comfort blanket like you did, um, yeah, quite a culture shock, right? Yeah, massively. I mean, um, things are quite relaxed at the council. Um, people, people take their take, take their jobs for uh, granted, really. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I think I think it's like any business. People, you got people that take the mick, and then people that are just serious about working. Um, but yeah, no. It's, I mean, like like I said, it's only been three months, but re- really excited for what the future holds for us. No, definitely, and obviously, from your side, it, I guess it's um, is it what you expected because. You've known me. We've never worked together previously. Um, well, that's a lie. I, I worked. Uh, it's a funny little story. Before, before I started um, up Somnium, um, I had kind of a three-month employment gap, and you said to me, "Why don't you just come and do some litter picking?" And at the time, I was like, uh, "Do you know what? Why not?" <laughs> and I remember, Lawrence. It was the most it, for that three months. Obviously, working in recruitment for six years. To then go and do three months. My biggest worry was getting up for half five to get to work six o'clock. <laughs> and I actually, do you remember there was like a a heat, there was a um a heat blast with the UK at that time. And it basically I was walking around in the sun picking up litter, getting the best tan, and just before I made the transition to starting my own agency. So yeah, I remember that. Do you, do you remember that? I remember when you first started and then when people started finding out who you was and like what you was doing there, they were like, oh, he's a spy. Don't tell him nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And what, I think it was Duncan or, or Will, one of your bosses, said to me, oh, tell tell, tell the workers that you've been sent from the town hall. And I just started telling people that and everyone, <laughs> no one wanted to talk to me. Uh, <laughs> lucky it was only a short stint. Um, uh, obviously, that, that aside, we've never worked together in partnership um you've come on board uh as the operations manager with immediate effect uh to kind of grow Luton and Bedfordshire alongside myself um and then move into directorship as we grow um how have you found it working with me the last three months was, was it what you expected like I said you, we've only kind of known each other from you know growing up sports kind of taking the mickey out of each other on that side um, right to kind of business yeah, I mean, like, so when 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 you come and work for the council for that short period of time, obviously you was out working on the tools, but I was in the office. So, like, from that point of view, like, we didn't work closely. But then, like, the last three months, like, I feel like I've really learned a lot about you. Like, you've been my brother for like thirty, what are you now, thirty four years. Hey, thirty three, then... steady on. <laughs> yeah, so like, and then like the things that are little things that I've learned, like I never realised like you was left handed as well as like, I'm left handed. And like, it's been, and like to see like your drive and determination, and to see you in that work environment, it was so weird and like surreal. And I think even now, like I have moments like when I look and I, I pinch myself, and I'm like, is this really happening? <laughs> but um, yeah, like when I see your passion for recruitment and what you want to do, um, yeah, it really is inspiring. To be fair, I mean, like you said, the whole pinch yourself kind of thing I, I go through moments like that you know like some days when I walk into the office and, and you're in there and and um 
we we look at the office because we've got a really nice office it's kind of geez like yeah how do we get here but exciting it's definitely exciting times ahead and you know it's great to have you on board obviously no one really knows what you're up to anymore Lawrence because you decided to come off social media uh, a little while ago what what was the reasoning behind that why did you come off yeah I mean I think I've been off social media now for like two maybe three years um I just felt like it was just it was just really negative. Like it wasn't negative, but it was, if that makes sense. So like people are posting up like all this really, really good stuff. And I know in my head, the people that are posting it. And I know that that's not a true reflection on what their life is like. Um, Mm. So yeah, I just, I got fed up with it. I mean, I left Facebook first of all, um, completely shut down my account. I mean, like the only thing I miss is like really when like important, like days come about, like people's birthdays. So you, I don't really wish people happy birthdays or anything like that. <laughs> but, but it was, I was just, I used to just scroll through. And I think at one point, yeah, I literally got my new phone and it was bringing up um, how many times, how often I picked the phone up. And I was yeah. picking my phone up every two to three minutes and like checking stuff. And I was just like, this is unreal. I'm wasting my life scrolling through, worried about other people's lives. And I just need to focus more on like my life. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's a, more of a habit, isn't it? And I think you know yourself if you try and get hold of me, kind of in the mornings before nine o'clock on the phone, you you, you can't get through to me. You know that, right? Yeah, I'm a nightmare because every morning I was I find myself, you know, I used to pick up the phone first thing and and kind of connect to Facebook or Instagram or whatever it could potentially be. And you just start the, the day off on completely the wrong foot, and like you said. People put snippets of their life up of the good stuff. They either put snippets of the good stuff up or people just go on there and moan. And you go on there and you scroll through and you think, actually, like, probably 90% of these people you don't see anymore. You don't even know. They're just like old school colleagues or or old work colleagues sorry, or old school friends. And, you know, it's, it's nice to go on there and catch up every now and again, but it can become a habit. And like you said, people compare their lives and stuff like that. So I've become really strict with my, my time on there i only kind of go on there to put stuff up with the kids and and kind of stay connected with like family that that we've got kind of over in america and and so on so but like, um, one, one thing that one thing that i found was is like the negative vibes they spread so quickly but like yeah people putting out positive vibes people just look at it and just don't really appreciate it yeah definitely no i agree so if we move on to um, talking about, obviously, you had such a diverse work career and that you had so much going on in the background, kind of in your own personal life that no one would ever know about. And I'm sure you won't mind me talking about the fact that you had a, a brief run in or two with the law um, and you had two different friendship groups growing up. One kind of sensible group of lads with their heads screwed on that had kind of jobs and career paths and another that kind of could have quite easily led you down the wrong path do you feel that like having bmx was kind of that that guiding light that kept you on track yeah no definitely i think like between bmx and all the other sports that i was doing at the time it definitely kept me on like the straight and narrow um i mean one though like obviously as i got older and as soon as i hit 18 like once i met donna and really settled down that Mm. was like a massive guidance for me like she was she was always really like grown up 
Um, yeah. and I felt like once I met her, I'd done a lot of growing up within a short space of time, and like really, yeah. really changed over like pro- probably like two two years. I've said. Mm. She screwed your head on, didn't she? I remember at the time. I thought oh, Lawrence Lawrence isn't fun anymore. Yeah, one hundred percent. It's um, it was almost uh, just grown into an adult. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's it's weird what one woman can do for so positive. So, dude, we're going to go into BMX in a little bit more detail. Um, and when you reflect you, you you on your career and you look at what you actually won, you achieved a lot in in BMX. Do you feel? that you overachieved for the effort that you put in. Um, yeah. On the flip side, if I go on the flip side of that, do you feel like you underachieved because of the raw talent that you had? Yeah, I feel like, yeah, you've got it in a nutshell there. Um, like, for the when I look back at some of the results that I've had over the years, in, like, the Worlds and Euros, and even, like, the amount of, like, national and British championships and stuff like that, yeah, I massively overachieved for the amount of effort that I put in. Um, but now, like with hindsight, I look back and just think, was I really a wasted talent? Could I could I have done more with my career? And I look back and I think, yeah, if I if I would have trained how I would have trained when I come back to race in 2012 and then 2014, yeah, geez, my my racing career could have been completely different. Yeah, hindsight's a, a beautiful thing, though, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and I, I remember at that time, kind of 2005 to 2008, was when Elite in um, the UK got a lot more, I wouldn't say a lot more serious, but you had people like, just take Kelvin, for example. He was, you know, he was training. I think he was might have been full-time at this time. He was um, in the gym, had a really good... And, you know, although he wasn't beating Kelvin week in week out he was always there or thereabouts and 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 not not a million miles from him so I, and when you look at it from that perspective um yeah if you would have switched up a little bit it could have been a lot different right yeah definitely I mean like from from 2000 and probably five as soon as like it was released that BMX was going to be an Olympic sport like it was almost like the fun was sucked out of it and stuff got real serious um mm. And that was one thing that I always loved about racing is like I was going away at the weekends, meeting with friends and like so many good people like over the years. And then it was like almost that was sucked out of it. And it was like, we're going racing. It's serious. And it's like, it's not what I enjoyed. But I think, yeah, I think, yeah like, like you said, like there was like Kelvin and Marcus and a couple of others who were on like the, the team, so to speak. And they were training full time. So, like, trying to keep up with them and train and, like, keep the family happy as well and balancing everything, like, work included, was just really, really tough. So, back to the start of your BMX career, how did it all begin? Can you remember? Yeah, so, um, when when I I was six and you was four, probably five, um, mum and dad see something in the paper. Um, advertised it about Royston Rockets, um, so they took us along, and we loved it. I mean, like BMX was definitely a sport that had me hooked from a young age, and like as I got older, and I started jumping and manualing, and actually racing competitively, I really got addicted to like the adrenaline side. But like, there was mm. no other sport that I was doing that gave me the same kick as what BMX did. Um. Yes, I mean, 
from like the age of like six to seventeen, I was probably like a hundred percent in BMX. There was nothing else. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Although you had all of these other sports going on, kind of BMX always took took kind of the the main spot, didn't it? Like when we had big, like say for example, we had a semi final football or you had a big rugby match or something, we'd always pick BMX to go to over over the others, didn't we? Yeah, one hundred percent. It was always a priority, wasn't it? Yeah. And if I remember rightly. The actual reason they took us to a Royston club night was because we used to rag our bikes around the back garden. And Mum was sick and tired of having no grass. Is that right? Yeah, we had we had quite a big back garden at the time, um, and we had there was a couple of trees, and we used to just race around it like a, a circuit. And uh, yeah, the, gra- the the lovely grass was ruined. There was flowers all been ripped <laughs> out. <laughs> it stopped us from climbing the tree. And the, the worst, the worst thing is, is that as we got more and more into BMX, the garden got worse and worse because we was adding jumps in, building little turns and a start gate and everything. Mum's master plan didn't quite come to fruition. Nah, definitely not. <laughs> um, but it accelerated quite quickly. So we went to a club night on a Tuesday night. Um, I think they saw your talent, uh, Phil Townsend, Phil Maureen Townsend. They were running the club. They're still running it now. And obviously, we met Richard um, when we was kind of that age. So we've known Richard for years and his his late brother, David, bless him, who passed away. Um, the, the Townsend family really helped guide us through them early years. And they mentioned about regional. I think it was the same weekend that we went to. And I think we went to that and you won... Um, can't remember where where do you remember where that was? It was I can't remember to be honest. It, pro- it I think it might have been at King's Lynn. I, I can't remember to be honest, but yeah, like you said, like as soon as we started the racing side of things, it like the going there, going to Royston and practicing was good, but like once we started racing, I think that's where the addiction become. Yeah, definitely. And then moved on quite quickly. So within a year. We was at the World Championships in Schindel, Holland. Yeah, so that was nineteen ninety three. That was that was our first ever Worlds. Um, I went there with no expectations. I, I ended up actually making the final. Um, yeah. So I got I got third in the final. Ended up getting a massive bronze like trophy, like some guy holding a crash helmet. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, about ten years later, I think I dropped it out the window as I opened the window <laughs> latch. I just knocked him with my elbow and fell out in the back garden. I think I, I was really upset about that, to be fair. You probably blamed me. <laughs> yeah, I probably did, to be fair. It was Chris. I got the blame for everything. But like, it was, I, it, I remember it, that. It was really weird, though, because I, I made my first world final before I'd actually won a national. Really? Yeah, it's unbelievable. I didn't win my first national until 1994. Oh, wow. Yeah. And if you go back to the Worlds, that, that was the Worlds when um, Dylan won... By I think he won by like the last straight. And do you remember all the British were standing clapping and chanting "Easy, easy"? Yeah, he absolutely smashed it that weekend. And like I'm the not... weather was the worst ever. Um, but yeah, I just remember sat in the grandstands with everyone, all the English, and they were literally just chanting "Easy, easy." He was he was so good. He was literally so good. Do you remember my um, world championships? <laughs> yeah, to a certain extent. <laughs> Is it short lived? Wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, fir- the first moto, I stopped on the first jump. Because uh, it was quite a big hill for the time, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It reminds me of like, hill. Um, the hill that they've got at Glasgow at the minute. I-, I haven't been up there myself. But yeah, so basically, I come off the hill. I don't know. I was definitely mid 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 to back of the pack. Um, and then I stopped on the first jump. 
and uh, I got mud in my eye. I couldn't see. So I come over the line, and Dad was like, I thought your chain fell off. I was like, nah, nah, a bit of mud in my eye, Dad. And he's like, just paid all this money to take you over there. I think that was pretty much the end of um, the end of the end of end of my world championship. So we move move on from that quite quickly. So '93, we got third, and then '94, we went to America, didn't we? Um, Michigan. Yeah, we went to Michigan. That was a great trip. That was. I remember we we travelled out there with um, the Keelers, Shane Keeler and Ralph Keeler. Um, yeah. But I remember, like, in the build-up to, like, that World Championships, like, Dad was on it. He was like, it's going to be hot. We need to get ready for it. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, no worries. And I remember the first day of training, like, Dad had us in full race kit, doing sprints on the grass whilst dragging, um, like, car tyres behind us. And I was just, yeah. it was, like, May, June, and I was just thinking, Wow. He's going to kill us. <laughs> we had bin bags on and all sorts. I, I remember thinking, like, this is worthwhile for Lawrence, but I'm useless. You need a lot more. I need a rocket up my ass for me to go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, you, you didn't come to fruition until about the year 2000. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was five, six years later. So you made the main there as well. Yeah, I did make the main. I ended up getting sixth. Um, so, yeah, all, all, the hard work, all, the, all the hard work was definitely worth putting in. Yeah, definitely. Do you remember who won? Um, I've got a feeling it might have been Santiago Duque. Yeah, because he won in 93 as well, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, he did. He was literally smashing the field. And then 95 um, was Colombia. We didn't go to Colombia. I think um, that's when Scott Bowman won in Colombia. Yeah, he did, yeah. And then, and then 96 was back home in Brighton. It's really funny to say about that because um, Marco... Delasoda's been sharing some videos of the Brighton Worlds recently. Um, and there was a semi-final of him, Scott Beaumont and Martin Murray. I think it was in junior men. And basically, Scott blew his gate. Marco got out quite well and was in third and then got T-bone in the second corner. And typical Martin Murray style, he uh, cornered his way into fourth and held on and made the main. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, yeah, so I mean, like, 1996 was, was the home Worlds in Brighton. And like, I remember going down probably like two months prior, um, mm. going down, going down to the track and practicing, and like on the second straight. I mean, obviously at the time, so what was I, I was twelve. So coming out the first corner, they had like a big. Well, at the time, I thought it was a big double, and then a massive step up. And I was just toying with the idea of like jumping it, and like luckily when Dad used to be at all the training sessions, I used to speak to him about jumping stuff from a young age. And he used to say to me, one thing he used to say was, if you can manual a jump, he's like, I'm sure you could jump it. I mean, look, looking looking at it now, it's probably one of the craziest things, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> but that, that's what I did. So I went out there and I manualed them both. And then I jumped the first one and then manualed the step up. I ended up jumping them both. And that really was a massive advantage because when it actually comes to the race, there was only like three or four people that were jumping it. So mm. it definitely gave me a massive advantage. Um, did you make the fight? Did you make the final? Yeah, I did make the final. Yeah, actually, oh, oh, I think I got. I, was same, so... I think Martin Murray come fourth, and I think I got I got fourth as well. Mate, I, honestly, I, I just remember thinking, when's this kid's luck gonna rub off? <laughs> <laughs> Three world finals in a row. You have got a real love affair with the worlds. When when you look back at it, um, you you used to make all the world finals growing up. Um, and yeah, and even like when we'll talk about you come back in, in a little bit uh, later on, but yeah, it's like you've got a love affair with the world champs. Yeah, definitely. The only position I could never get was first. <laughs> I think I, yeah. I think I think the only position I've not come is first, first, second, 
yeah, I've got all the rest of them a couple of times on a, a couple of times on some of them as well. Yeah. Um. So obviously, then you know, like we said, you you went on to make multiple world world and European finals. Um. When you look back, what would you consider being your best result over the years? I would say probably my first year of junior was my most successful, um, just because it was spread over sort of like ten rounds and traveling traveling around Europe. I mean, we had some great road trips um, that year. I mean, a couple of them we traveled with Paul Hart and Danny Hart. He's now doing mountain biking, doing really well. Um, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, Kelvin jumped in. Kelvin Bate jumped in on a couple of them because um, he was doing elite at the time. So yeah, yeah, I mean, we had some really good good trips that year. I don't even I don't remember where the rounds were, um, but all I know was the final one was in Geneva. Yeah, and and it was over ten rounds, wasn't it? And you, was, I think, you was first year. So you had some. It was a competitive field in your age. You had um, Pablo Gutierrez. Yeah. Uh, Gregory Murray, Clement Dobie. Yeah, there was some <laughs> some really big names in there. Henrik Boltzan. There was um, oh, Henrik. Do you remember him? He was poor. He, he used to pull, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, he was a powerhouse, wasn't he? But yeah, I mean, like, so going into that weekend in Geneva, um, I was sat in second, Pablo was first, and Gregory Moray was third. And yeah. so basically, it came down to the last two races, and the weather was scorching all week. It was so nice. And I think I won the first day on the Saturday. So that put me into pole position, so I was, I was leading out going into the Sunday, but I just never felt like there was any pressure like, at all, and then the Sunday because comes around. Because if you go Lawrence, if you go back, because you wasn't even planning to do all of the rounds, was you? No. Uh, I think you just went to the first two with Dad and then you made both mates. Yeah, so like we'd obviously done a couple of like Euro rounds previously um, when they were in like Volkenswald and Bournemouth, and Dad obviously had his sights set on going to them when I hit junior. So he'd spoken to me about it. So we decided we went to the first two and actually made both finals. I was completely shocked, to be fair. And I think that's what almost got Dad hooked onto it. Then he was like, yep, we are going. So we did. We travelled around mm. Europe in that beat-up old van. <laughs> it, was, it was souped up. We had, uh, we had a little TV in it and... Um... It was like a, a, a was it a video player? Yeah, we had a video player and we were watching Harry Potter. <laughs> well, well, uh, well um, advanced at the time. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so back to the so final going into the final round, leading it out. Yeah, so both of us in the final round on the Sunday, um, like all the big names have made the final, and it obviously come down to like me and Pablo and Gregory, mm. and. Got a blinding gate, literally led the whole race from the inside and got to the final straight. And then Pablo went past me, done me on the literally on the finish line by like a, a tire yeah. rip. I think Murray was in second and Pablo was in third and he high load and it was like a drag race to the end, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, like <laughs> when, I, when I look back, like the only thing that I could have done differently, like I manualed the last jump and Pablo jumped it. And I think that might have just given him a bit more momentum going forward. Not, not that you think about it too much. No, nah, no, nah, not that, not that it haunts me or anything. <laughs> but like that's and, really, um, really weird because, like, obviously, when you're younger, 
and you're competitive. Like growing up, like I, I look back and I had some great battles with the likes of like Andrew Holland, Mark Moore, Bruce Wilkins, Liam Beatty. And like when you're younger, you, you hate them. Do you know what I mean? And then like yeah. as you grow older, they become like they're your friendships, like the groups yeah. of people that you hang around with. It's really funny that you say that because um, I don't know if you or you're not on social media, but I'm, I told you um, Warren Bancroft drove down here the other week and surprised me and asked me to be a groomsman at his wedding. And I mean, if you think about rivalries, I used to, how he still likes me, I'll never know because I used to ride him over every part of the track. Chris, to be fair, you've rode everyone over every part of every track. <laughs> it always reminds me of going back to Chesterfield when you missed the race and they reran it and then you put me over the turn. Oh, that that was a that was a story. I think that was my first ever elite men race because I I think I had done a hit you. I hit Oggy and you and Oggy went over the corner. Yeah. I just remember thinking, oh no, Oggy's gonna kill me. I just got I went over the finish line. I think I got third. I was like, I'm in the main. I didn't want to celebrate. I just kept because as you get to Chesterfield, it goes as you come over the finish line, it's like um goes into the camping area at the back. Yeah. It? So I just went, I just carried on riding straight up the hill. I just thought, just don't look back, just keep riding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, so, obviously, the, um, you, you know, you finished second in the junior men and then carried on kind of racing, but maybe not as competitive um, in terms of Europe and the world and stuff. And then it brings us on nicely to 2008, the um, Olympic trials. And obviously, at this point, you know, the UK BMX team was a bit um, divided in the sense that Liam was up and coming, Kelvin that was kind of um, consistently making names, and then Marcus, who on his day could, could kind of, you know, compete with anyone. And they was unsure for so long as who was going to go, who's not going to go. You know, there was, I think you, you, you said about kind of there was a BMX talk platform, the, um, what was it, Lawrence, the... The, 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 the just, yeah, the talk talk board that they used to everyone used to go on, wasn't it? Yeah, there was lots of rumours flying around on that. Um, so it was quite a difficult time for UK BMX, I think. Um, firstly, obviously, you were lucky enough to to make that last place in the trial. Talk to us how you you won that spot. Yeah, so I mean, like you said. After 2001, I'd done a junior in 2002, in my second year, and I ended up coming in the top eight. Um, yeah. And then I raced in the UK through the years, and then, like, from 2007 and 2008, I actually won the elite uh, national titles back-to-back. I mean, it was... I say I won it. I mean, there, there was the likes of, like, Marcus and Kelvin weren't actually racing it because they was actually on the team. And like when did you know? Did you know you'd won? Did you know that you were back to back elite national champion? No, nah, did I? Act? Who told you? you. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I mean, like they weren't racing. Like when the when the whole Olympic thing come about, for like the strangest reason, like the, all of like Marcus and Calvin and the big hitters, they stopped racing in England, and they were literally just focused on just single solo events. I mean, like, luckily, mm. luckily nowadays, Marcus is in charge of it and things have changed and mm. everyone seems to be doing a lot more riding. Um, but yeah, I mean, so it was a weird one. So they basically announced that um, of one of the nationals, whoever won this national, they was going to go and be in like this pre-Olympic race in Switzerland. Yeah. So off we went up to Hartlepool. I mean, they, to be fair, they couldn't have held it at a worse track. 
Um, if it was Ewan that went up there to have a look at it before the national, then he needs second. <laughs> but I mean, like, was like I said, it was the worst, worst track. It's just five turns. There was like two full straights, what you'd call like in a national track, and then there was like four shortest straights ever. Mm. Um, like probably now, if the track was exactly the same now, it wouldn't even get a regional. But like every man is well, say every man is dog. There was only like six of us that raced. But like Harrison Britt had come over, there was Daniel White, Luke Gamble, and there was like six of us going for this like pre Olympic race spot. Um, so obviously, because there was less than eight of us, there was Grand Prix. Did you did you feel confident going in? Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, like I'd won in two thousand and seven. I mean, like the, the thing is, like Dan White was on just getting himself in with like the British Cycling Federation. So like he mm. was obviously training full time. And like yeah. he, you know what Dan White was like, he was a bit of a lunatic anyway, wasn't he? <laughs> he loved the corner. I oh, loved the corner. You just and gamble. Yeah, gamble loved the corner as well, to be fair. <laughs> so yeah, I mean obviously it was a Grand Prix so like the first three motors didn't really count. It was just down to like the three finals. Yeah. Um so the first final I got second in it and Dan White let it out. Um Becomes third in the second final. I think Harrison Britt won that one and Dan White got second. So mm. it basically all come down to the last final. I just remember I was just so tired. Like my legs were just so stiff and just felt heavy. And I ended up getting the worst gait ever. Um, and was like neck and neck with like fifth going into the first turn. And I just remember brake checking, thinking, oh, Gamble's on the inside. And luckily, Gamble does what Gamble does best, and he just absolutely smashed everyone in the turn. Mm. Um, so I high load and actually come out neck and neck with Dan White. Um, yeah. So I just ease over him on the, on the second straight, um, gave myself a little bit more room, and then just just see it through to the line. And I come across there, and I was just it was it was a weird feeling to be fair because I was absolutely knackered, thinking, "Great, I've got to now go and pack my stuff and go off to Abel now and try and race next weekend." Yeah, so it was quite a quick turnaround, wasn't it? And um, I think you said, like you said, you finished on the Sunday, had to drive kind of, how many hours home from Hartlepool? Yeah, it was quite quite a drive. Luckily, I went with Phil Townsend and Rich Townsend. So it was a long, long trip, long trip home. Like, I think it's like seven, eight hours. Yeah. Um, drove home, packed your bags and off you went to Switzerland um, for the Olympic trial. Now, was it awkward for you going over to Eagle? people that don't know kind of we grew up with Liam and Charlie so we went to lots of world championships with Liam and Charlie Phillips through kind of our youth and then as you got older Kelvin went on a couple of European trips with you and and Marcus was a teammate for kind of the last four or five years of your of your racing career and like I said at this point there was quite a divide in the UK BMX scene and it was getting a bit poisonous um Liam was obviously still a kid Kelvin was kind of the person that everyone like would was thought was going to be going. Um, and then you'd won a Hartlepool National and, and off you're going. So first and foremost, did, did you feel like, did you feel confident? Did you think you was actually going to make it to the Olympics? And secondly, was it awkward? <laughs> no, I definitely didn't think I was going to make it to the Olympics. Um, it was it was nice to go over there and to, to, to be part of it. Yeah, definitely. Um like you say, it was just the most awkwardest situation for me personally. Um, mm. Because we were so close with like the Phillips family at the time. And like Pete was out there with Liam, obviously. There was Marcus, who was on his own. Um, Kelvin was out there with Tony Flemdog and 
uh, Ben. And then there was like me on my own. It was like, so like everyone that I'd grown up with, they were now fight, like basically fighting hammer and tooth to try and get this spot to the Olympics. Um, Like, yeah, Liam was the young up and coming guy um, who was dedicated and had all these good things going for him. And then Kelvin was like, in sort of like his peaks, I think Kevin would have been like 27, 28. And mm. like, I feel, I feel like the divide in like the BMX community, there's only ever been one other bigger divide, I think. And that was when clip pedals come out. Like, yeah. it basically just split people. Do you know what I mean? It was exactly the same. People were either clips or not clips. And on, on this occasion, people were either Liam Phillips or Kelvin Beatty. And they yeah, had, it, was, it was really an, an awkward time. I, I remember it, and I think that was, yeah, it was one of the reasons why I kind of fell off the scene. So, in terms of over in Switzerland, what was the what was you told as a rider the format would be, and then how did it play out? So basically, we was going out there. We was going to do sort of like three motos and then a final. Yeah. Um, I think by the time we got over there, I got over there like Wednesday. So I had a couple of days practice on the track. I think I actually crashed in practice. I remember just going up and just pulling a big flat tabletop by accident. And my hand actually slipping off the handlebars. So I took a big hit on the pro section. Um, and then when it actually comes to the race day, it rained. And it literally rained for sort of like four or five days straight. And was this on the Friday? Yeah. So it rained Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and you didn't race? No, we didn't race in the end. Um, ended up staying there for sort of like nearly 10 days. And then there was a, like, after the five days of rain, there was actually a break where the track was actually dry enough to race. Well, so you've gone over there. There's a, a poisonous um, atmosphere. Um, and you don't even get to race on the day. You guys are holed up in a hotel. Yeah, basically. So we was in the digs with the, um, all the rest of the team from sort of like the Eagle lot where they live. Um, oh, the UCI, the UCI centre. Yeah, but it was just awful. Like, the atmosphere in the air, you could cut the tension with a knife. Like, looking back, I can laugh now, but at the time, it was just, like, really, really awkward because, like, when it comes to, like, having breakfast, like, there was, like, two separate groups. It was just really, just a bad situation. Like, and obviously, giving us a little bit of an insight, because there was a lot of tension from outside the camp. But what was it like with between you, Kelvin, Marcus, and Liam? Did Kelvin and Liam speak, or because I remember Marcus saying that you was kind of if you wouldn't have been at that trip, it'd have been ten times worse. He said that you kind of broke the ice, I guess, because do you feel like you maybe played like the middle man because you knew both of them and you'd grown up with? Them? Yeah, I think so. Like obviously, I think Marcus feels that because it was just Marcus on his own and then me on my own. Um, <laughs> like we always had a good laugh, me and Marcus. Um, but like it was, it was just. It was a really difficult situation to be put in. And basically, I couldn't wait to get out of it, to be fair. I mean, like, I was ringing up home saying, oh, Don, I'm going to be home for another couple of days. And she was like, Jesus, are they ever going to do this race or not? And I said, no, when, the, when the rain stops and that, I said, yeah, probably. So, but it was, it was just, it, the whole situation from the British cycling was just dealt with really bad. Mm. It was like no final firm decision was there, so it was it was and it dragged on for way too long. So back to the question, Liam and Kelvin, was there any communication between them two in this five, six, seven days? Did they talk at all? Or was it just like 
completely like blanking each other. Nah, they didn't. They didn't talk at all. To be fair, I mean, like at the time, Pete had driven out there in the camper van, so like Liam yeah. wasn't actually staying with us. Liam was staying in the camper van, so basically Liam kept himself to himself, and then there was like, Kelvin. And his people that he was with, so no, they, there was no communication between them. It was like separate, and probably best as well because obviously <clears throat> Liam was a kid still at the age of seventeen, and obviously Kelvin probably had a lot of pent up anger, which rightly so, if you look if you look at it from his perspective, it, it's re- a really difficult one. So, how did it play out the race? So, when it comes to the race, um, got up, the track was dry pretty much in all of the places. Um, Ended up doing the first race and literally the first race coming down the first straight. Kelvin was on the inside and Liam was next to him and then Marcus and then me. Um, Kelvin ended up crashing and that practically wrapped up the whole race. Um, They did just that one race and that was it. They shut it down. So Liam won that race. Marcus came second, you came third and obviously Kelvin crashed. And then... Why did they not carry on with the rest of the format? Did they give you any communication as to why you didn't carry on? Yeah, so basically they wanted it to be a fair enough race where everyone, like everyone, was involved. Like obviously right. Kelvin had crashed and he wasn't able to carry on, so they was just looking to do it when Kelvin was going to get fit again. So basically, we travelled out there, done all that practice and race, one race, and then ended up travelling back to England. And I think they all went back out there back out to Eagle when Kelvin was sort of like able to race. Yeah. It was just, it was, just a, it was handled so badly by British cycling at the time. But I think because BMX was new to the Olympics and the way they dealt with it, they tried dealing with it in like a, a track sort, sort of like scenario, like the way they knew best. And BMX doesn't yeah. always fit into that category. Like massively, massive learning curve for them. Um, mm. especially in regards to like the coach that was in there at the time, I think his name was Keith Reynolds. Um, but like just having somebody with a BMX background was then going to be like their key priority. And then, yeah. and to be fair to them, that's what they've done since Keith. Yeah, no, definitely. So post Olympic trial, you kind of fell off the BMX radar. What what happened? Where where did you go? Where what was you doing two thousand and eight to two thousand and eleven? Um, so I just had a just. I think that was almost like the icing on the cake. I'm just done with BMX for the time being. But obviously, after mm. the whole Olympic trial, BMX was just split even worse than what it was to begin with. Like everyone thought the Olympics was going to be a good thing, and it seemed to just tear like BMX in the UK apart. Um, yeah, it just made things really awkward. Like when you go to races and stuff. So I just had a break from it. Um, until 2011, and then like you and Sean started up the BMX hype team, and we did. And you talked me back into coming a race. Um, we needed we needed a racer. We needed a rider and elite. We couldn't have me and Sean. Could you imagine that? <laughs> no, but I, when I come back, I wasn't even racing elite. I come back was racing on flat pedals. Um, race like three races in 25 to 29, just so I could qualify for the worlds. Yeah. Um, ended up making a f- few finals. And then like, after the Worlds, I went and done back to Elite for the last three rounds. Yeah. But, I mean, I like, went... When... So, come, so come back. So you qualified for the... So you raced 25, 29 in, in the UK, qualified for the World Championship 2012, which were in Birmingham. Um, tell us a little bit about that that week. Oh, it was a great week. 
So I think that was like the beginning of like what we called like the Bang Bus Crew, <laughs> which was like me, you, Sean, Ellie, Ria. Like that was our little our little crew that we um, travelled with, wasn't it? So like, yeah, we obviously went there the week prior to the Worlds. Um, stayed on the campsite at the Birmingham um, where the Nationals are held, Perry Park. Perry Park, yeah, yeah. Um, and then we we had a great week in the lead up to it. I remember being sat out on the river in the pubs, and it was just really it, the weather was beautiful. I think it was like thirty degrees, and like, I remember we was going out with Anthony Ravel, Waza, and like just having like all my old mates from prior to the Olympics there having a good time with no stress, no pressure, no tension. It was just like it was almost like the first big race that we had attended from a young age where we didn't have any pressure and we just wanted to have a bit of fun. Yeah, definitely. So like it was just it was a really nice it was a, it was a, probably the best atmosphere I think I've ever been in like in the build up to a race. Yeah. How did the race go down? <laughs> yeah, the race went on. <laughs> you, you paused. Are you thinking about nah, that? The, the, the race went. The race went down good from my perspective. You, I mean, you're um, you're, you when you had that long pause, you're definitely thinking about some of the memories that happened. But we won't go into this. <laughs> we had, it was a bit of a uh, rascal week. So the racing for you, because I remember you had a stack moto. It was you, Warren, and Sean Fry all in together. No, no, no. Was it? Uh, yeah, I think. Do you know what? Yeah, you're actually right. It was me, Warren, and Sean yeah. Fry all in the same moto. Because um, I remember looking at your moto and thinking, thank God I ain't in that one tomorrow. Yeah, because I looked at it. Because you didn't run that at the point when you stayed with the four people from your moto all the way through to the final. Yeah, you went through, they went through with you. All the way through to the final, yeah. So, like, like you said, I, I completely forgot that I had them in my final. Because I remember looking at it thinking, geez, I couldn't have got a more stacked one even if they tried. I thought, this is yeah. going to be a short day today. Um, but no, I mean, I ended up getting through the motos. Um, and I'm like... I just remember, I think there was like six, I think there was 64s. And I was just looking, thinking, I've only been doing like four laps at a time in a day. Now there's like, I'm, I'm going to be doing like nearly eight. Yeah. So, but yeah, no, I mean, I ended up getting through to the final. Um, ended up coming, getting a little bit of luck in the final. I think I was in like seventh. Um, we got rid of one French guy on the gate when I done my little um, clicking and the break. <laughs> that was enough to put him off. Um, <laughs> you you put off a few uh, British elite riders, uh, the younger generation with that as well. Yeah, no, definitely. Like they used to do my little thing after, during the pause in the gate sequence, just clicking my brake three times, and it just seemed to mess everyone else's concentration up. But give me my mind games that I was going to do this. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I got a little bit of luck in the final. There was a crash on the last straight, rode past a couple of uh, fallers, um, but yeah, I mean, I got fourth. So that was good. That was a good. Good, good race. To be fair, yeah. And to to top it off, you won three hundred pound on the on the is it sweepstake? Yeah, I did. So we was all sat in the stands for like the elites. Um, obviously beforehand, we cut up all the riders. I remember sitting in the grandstand, cutting up the riders, and I remember seeing Sam Willoughby, and I was like, "Well, it's just slipping in my pocket." <laughs> um, but yeah, obviously they all go into a hat, and then you pay, and then pull you pull your rider out. And I, I was, I think I was like the second person to pull out. Um, had a couple of goes and then pulled Sam Willoughby out and I just couldn't believe it. He, he went on to win the race, ended up being like £300 better off. And then like we went out on a night out after the racing 
Um, yeah, after party. Yeah, ended up having an after party at um, I can't remember where it was now, but it was somewhere in Birmingham, some massive like nightclub. Um, come out of there at like four or five in the morning. I remember walking down the street, me, you, and Wazza. What Sean is it drunk as a skunk? Um, and actually bumping into Sam Willoughby, like it was the weirdest situation going. And then like, I remember saying to him, Are you Sam Willoughby? And he was like, No, I think he thought we was going to mug him. <laughs> and then I was like, <laughs> I said, No, I said, We want to get a picture. I said, I just won 300 pounds today. So we got all the money out, and then me, you, Wazza, is it? So, yes, yeah, fun times it was. <clears throat> Good memories. And then you went back into Elite for a year in the UK um, to court and. and... Ended up qualifying for 2014, two years later in Rotterdam, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, actually carried on racing after Birmingham. Um, ended up finishing 10th that year. And so, going into, like, racing in Holland, I was obviously working and had a lot of commitments with, like, family and stuff like that. So, it was going to be, a, like, from my point of view, it was going to be a short trip. I know that like the rest of the bang bus crew, they all wanted to go out and they were going to stay until after the, the elite races and stuff. Uh, but my, me, literally, I was going out there to race, race my race, spend the night there and then travel back the next day. Yeah. So it wasn't as fun as what Birmingham was, that's for sure. But you, you went up, you, you didn't go up, but you could have raced 30 plus and maybe gone for the world title, but instead you thought, no, nah, I'm not going to sandbag it, I'm going to race up into the Masters. Yeah, so I raced, raced, it was my first year of Masters. Um, mm. But like like you said, there was there was no easy race. I mean, there were some really big names in there, like Christian Bessarine, um, Calvin was racing. Your moto, he was in your moto, wasn't he? You had a stack moto. Yeah, he was. There were some, some big riders as well from like people that had done well in elite in Europe, like in mm. like, Say ten years earlier, so that was it. Was a really tough category. Um, you had like um, Kelvin, Ferkleston. Yeah. Um, I think in your moto you had Ferkleston, Besserine, and Brink. No, it wasn't. It, was no, like... it wasn't Doris Brink. It was an, another Dutch guy, but he was he he also made the final. So like the four people that went through from my moto all ended up making the final. Really? Yeah, really weird. It was like a real tough moto. I love a tough moto at the Worlds. <laughs> and so you made the you made the Masters final. Yeah, I did end up making the final. Um, so I finished seventh, um, which weren't weren't it weren't the best result. I mean, but if you'd have given me that, if you'd have said someone would have said before the race, like the week leading up to it, oh yeah, you're going to make the final, make seventh, I'd have been over the moon with it. But it's just one of them things when you when you're there in the moment, it felt disappointing. But like yeah. other people were buzzing for me, like Reedy, like Darren Reed, like he buzzes off people doing well. Do you know what I mean? And then like I remember coming back to the campsite and someone had left like a a note on the caravan saying, "Well done, Mappy, this, that, and the other." So like I, I come back disappointed, and like people were absolutely buzzing for me. But. Yeah, and we ended up going back to a little spot and we had a few beers, then you packed up and you was off. The <laughs> yeah, that's it, yeah. Went back to our little cafe where we was uh, having our coffees and that. But I, I remember just that, that that was also, like, the weather was beautiful all week. Like, the weather definitely makes a race. I mean, beautiful weather both weekends and then both races indoors. Yeah, yeah, it's typical. So, it was that your last race? Yes, yeah, so that was my last race. So you battled out with a world final in Masters, yeah. why not? And that was six years ago. Jeez, time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
six years ago. It's crazy. And so just like to tie up on the BMX career, do you have any regrets? Uh, no, I don't think I've got any regrets. Like, I think if you live with regrets, then you just, you're never going to be happy. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. looking, looking back, I mean, nah, there's no regrets at all. Good times. Nothing but good, good times. You've been through some really highs, some real highs and some real lows, um, BMX and personally. Did, did you, growing up, did you have a role model or someone that you looked up to um, to keep you focused and stay on the right track? Yeah, definitely. So many role models along the way, especially like with racing, like being young, I looked up to people like Danny Nelson, like Randy Stumphouse and Mario Soto. And then from like Europe was like Thomas Allier, Carmen Falco, Dylan Clayton, Jamie Staff and Dale Holmes. And then, like, from like, yeah. a work perspective, like, obviously, being at the council for, like, 17 years, like, Duncan gave me so much guidance through, like, my earlier years. It's, like, my first, sort of, like, yeah. seven years. And then after that, I was, like, mentored by, like, Alex Green and William Green. And, like, I just couldn't thank mm. them enough. Do you know what I mean? They've both done a really good job for me. Um, yeah. So they're the people that have been my mentors. Stuff and, and we were quite blessed going back to like the BMX racing in the UK at that time with Dylan, Jamie, Dale, Revs. It was a stacked class back then. That was what when you think about it now, like that elite class was was really competitive. Yeah, hundred percent. It was like when when I look back, that was probably they were like the the proper BMX years. Definitely. A couple more questions before we finish up. What do you wish you'd have known when you started out? That life is tough and it certainly isn't fair. Like, it's just, you, you, you're dealt a set of cards and you make your own luck sometimes. Um, it's just the way that you deal with day, day-to-day situations. And if you could share one piece of advice or wisdom for someone that is trying to overcome adversity... Or someone that's going through a hard time right now, what would it be? Stick with the plan. Don't let obstacles distract you. And yeah, just knuckle down, head down, crack on. But um, yeah. Good stuff. Any last words? No, just thank you for everyone for supporting me along the way. Thanks to Donna and my family and everyone else, yeah. Good stuff. Well, that's it for the first episode of Map Your Future. Hope you guys have enjoyed listening. Please remember to like, share and subscribe. And yeah, we'll have another episode with you soon. Thanks, Lauren. Cheers. Thanks a lot.